Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 217. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 217 you're listening to. My guest today is Tony Maserati. Tony, of course, rose to success in the 90s in the New York R&B and hip-hop scene, where he worked with Puff Daddy, Busta Rhymes, Mary J. Blige, Notorious B.I.G., Faith Evans, and Queen Latifah, just to name a few. So, uh, Tony Maserati coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's get some coffee, shall we? Mmm. All right. The band Tiger Touch is a band that I work with. They're based in uh, Portland, Oregon. And of course, that is the band that our friend Cliff Truesdell, who has done the Working Class Audio theme music, uh, Cliff is a member of Tiger Touch. And I worked on their last EP, El Gato. I'm super excited because I was on Facebook and saw that they were posting that they were uh, releasing, a, a, I guess, a limited edition 7-inch of, of the single. And of course... I realized Cliff was going to send me one of those copies because we had talked about it a couple months ago. And then I realized, you know, I really look forward to playing that, but we kind of have kind of an inexpensive Crosley turntable in the living room that the kids can get to. And, you know, it's like one of those little suitcase things. It's not, not something to write home about, but it's definitely something to expose the kids to, you know, that uh, medium of vinyl. And it's, and it's kind of fun. And we've got a bunch of old records from, you know, our youth, my wife and I, um, and my father-in-law gave me a bunch of old country records of his. So I realized I really want to get a nice turntable. I don't really need to go down a huge, you know, vinyl rabbit hole. I want to, you know, keep it within reach. So I'm looking to you all. If you have advice on record players, turntables, whatever, that you have uh, experienced and you think I should try or or I should get because I'm going to make a decision and buy one. I'll cap the budget at, we'll say, no more than $500 max. Shipping, tax, all that. So if you have a suggestion, please let me know what that suggestion is via Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com, of course. I'd be curious to hear. I need some uh, some input because there's some, there's some companies out there making some cool stuff and your help is appreciated. So please chime in. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You m- might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom. Very simply, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, that's it. Let's get on to it. Let's uh, talk to Tony Maserati here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Great to have you on. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Pleasure to meet you there at NAM, and uh, appreciate your quick response and getting back to me. I know you're very busy, so it's much appreciated. Let's just dive right in. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Providence, Rhode Island. Small town. Two sisters, went to college in Boston and stayed in Boston for quite a while, went to Berkeley School of Music, and then moved to New York the day after graduation. Did your uh, parents have any musical or audio-based influence on you growing up? They were both music lovers. Neither one of them played instruments. My dad used to joke, I, I think he got a lesson in on ukulele and then got frustrated and broke it or something like that. But uh, And my mother was in like a glee club or something, you know, <laughs> and they would joke about that all the time, of course. But no, they, they didn't uh, push me in the music. I started playing guitar quite late. I was 16. I was never very good. <laughs> um, but that's okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, when did uh, audio really catch your attention, the, the concept of working on records? You know, when I was learning to play and when I was a young adult, 16, 17, I would try to record myself playing 
and I would use whatever devices I could find. I had always been one of those kids who took my sister's record player and radio and all that sort of shit apart and try to figure out how to put it back together and sometimes did and sometimes didn't. And then when I was in college, I had a roommate who played guitar. So we would just record ourselves on cassette or, you know, I think he had one of those little four track jams from, from Tascam. Yeah. You know, I just started really digging in and then started doing live sound and recording myself and my bandmates. And that stuff came real natural. I, I kept getting hired, even though I didn't want to be hired as a, as a sound man, uh, a front of house guy. I, I continued to get hired and I was like, God damn, you know, it's, I don't, don't want to do this. And then, uh, yeah. And the story goes that after I went to Berkeley and I was studying there for a while. I was practicing with a, with a roommate of mine and uh, he stopped me and he said, you know, you should, you should uh, sign up for the MP&E program at, at Berkeley. And I said, why, man? I want to, I want to write and play and be on stage. And he said, yeah, you're not good enough. <laughs> he said, you've been practicing the same thing all year and you're not getting any better. And he was right. And he was like, you know what? You're really good at recording and you're really good at live sound. And that comes natural and you're not a good enough player and you're not a good enough singer. So you should do this other thing. And so I looked into it and, you know, and he was right. I'm more of a natural at, at the technical thing than I am at the playing thing. Was that a difficult message to hear at the time? You know, I, I've taken it to heart. In some way, it was, it was freedom, right? Because I had been struggling to try to get better mm-hmm. and whatever you know, brain business needs to happen for you to be that good, especially around Berkeley guys. I mean, those dudes are, you know, at the, at the top level of, of, of the, the folks at Berkeley, there, there isn't anybody better. I mean, New England conservatory down the street. Yeah, sure. They've got classical musicians who are amazing, but jazz, you know, and just players, the top guys at Berkeley are pretty amazing. And, uh, and when you, when you see that and when you experience that level of connection to their instrument or ease of, you know, movement in, in any kind of musical, uh, format, you know, you realize, yeah, maybe I'm not so good. (laughs) Maybe I'm not a natural in that way. Cause if you're a natural, you know, you somehow keep up. And, and you keep moving and you keep getting better and you find your path. And I don't, I wasn't a natural. Hmm. And that's the bottom line, you know? And it was evident. So it was kind of freedom. I was like, oh, yeah. And I do this other thing really well without thinking. Never studied up until that point technology. And then when I got into the MPE program, I obviously studied a lot of technology and continue to do so. So then, uh, if I'm correct, you went over to work at, with Glenn Rosenstein at Sigma Sound Studios? Yeah, Glenn was, Glenn was the chief engineer. Well, at that time, I don't, when I first got there, I think there was a guy named Jim Doc Dockerty, and he was the chief engineer at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And then Doc sort of went independent, and Glenn took over chief engineer at Sigma. But my buddy, uh, Hank Meyer, is the one who hired me. And um, my interview was me completely exhausted from the New York streets and him offering me coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And we ended up chatting and hanging out for over an hour. And then then he was like, yeah, I don't have a job anymore. I gave it away already. 
And I was like, oh, all right, cool. Talk to you later. And then he called me up two weeks later. I was like, yeah, I think we need you. So I was like, rock and roll. Huh. Yeah, it's great. At what point did you meet Devante Swing, who in- introduced you to Puff Daddy? It's possible that Prince Charles introduced us. Oh, no. I know what it was. Chungking Studios. I had made friends with a studio manager at Chungking, Laura King, John King's sister. Chungking was a shithole downtown. But all the hip-hop guys are working there. So I worked with Brand Nubian. I worked with a bunch of people. And Laura used to just call me. She would call me at like 8 o'clock and come in tonight. And I'd be in all, all night. And I would have already worked all day. And that's, I think, where I met, met Devante, probably just in the hall. Because there were only two studios and one lounge. I think I met him there. And then we started working together. And he was also doing some work with Prince Charles. And, and I think maybe that's where I made that connection. But um, yeah, I started working with him down in Chungking. Chungking didn't have any proper engineers mm-hmm. at the time. So I think I was just somebody who really knew what was going on because I had come from Sigma and knew how to use all the gear. And, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I got I got hired just because I knew how to save the MPC on a floppy disk. You know, <laughs> the, that was the only reason I got hired, I think, for Brand Nubian. But uh, <laughs> I'm to understand that basically you gravitated towards hip hop because you did not feel that there was innovation happening in any other style of music. So you thought, well, I'm going to go in this direction. That's absolutely right. I mean, look, I I was at Sigma and in those days there was this bar around the corner called Possible 20 and all the musicians and, and technical folks would show up there and drink beer at night because we used to do jingles during the day, right? In those days. And then at night there would be record sessions. And if you were not on a night session, then you would go there and drink because they were cheap beers. But everybody in town wanted to be Neil Dorseman, wanted to be Bob Clearmountain, including myself. I mean, who doesn't want to be as good as Bob Clearmountain? Uh, I, I, I don't even know any of my colleagues who couldn't say like, yeah, I want to be as good as him. <laughs> <laughs> right. We all we all want to be as good as Bob Clearmountain. But it, it was pretty evident that in those days there was a there was a clear demarcation between folks who were embracing the new technologies of MIDI and programming and you know computers were, were very new uh, in those days. Uh, I, I was using like an Atari computer with Notator on it. Wow. And you know my buddy had a, a had a little a little Apple. You know, one of those, I forget what they were even called, the, the old thing that was just a screen and the computer in one. You know, so we were learning those software. Engineers didn't embrace that shit. I mean, most of the engineers I knew spent most of their time learning how to mic a snare. And, I, you know, I spent my time doing that too. But it seemed pretty clear that, you know, there were plenty of talented engineers who could record a band but there were very few engineers. I mean, there were some engineers who didn't even bother to learn the SSL. Like I used to have to, as an assistant, go over their shoulder and tap in commands, you know, for the automation and show them how to use the automation, which was very typical. I'm not saying this is, you know, I'm special. Right. That's what an assistant did in those days. We knew how to use the SSL or the Neve inside and out. And the, and the visiting engineers would would just come in and sit down and they would get balances and they would ask you how to do shit. That was very typical in those days. But I, I took it to another level to the point where I wanted to learn everything about MIDI because, you know, if the crowd is, is all going towards 
learning how to make a record, you know, an Arcadia record, I think. Wasn't that the Robert Palmer uh, sort of super group? Wasn't that, was that what it was called? Or was it Power Station? Power Station, yeah. Something right. was like a super group or whatever, you know. And there were plenty of dudes who, who, you know, were flocking to be on those records and to make those records. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm particularly savvy or anything like that, but it didn't take a genius to see that, you know, if you got, you know, I mean, I mean think about how many assistant engineers or young engineers there were in New York at the time. Now there are hundreds, thousands but in those days, you know, how many studios were there? 25, maybe 50 awesome studios. How many engineers, young engineers were trying to make a buck? You know, times two, 200. You know, nowadays there's thousands every year. There's, you know, the colleges spew out thousands and thousands of, en you know, so-called engineers. Mm -hmm. So for me as a, as a young person trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do, it was like obvious, you know. There's, there's 200 dudes trying to get the same gig and nobody's looking over here at MIDI and dance and all of the innovations that were happening technologically that I found it very interesting and really thoughtful. And, and then, of course, hip hop started coming up and they were really digging in on drum machines and samplers and, and technology of that sort. I was the only guy in the room or in the whole building. I was I was one of very few people in the whole New York City who could lock up tape machine to sampler to to a computer to all of that stuff. I mean, I still have my SBX eighty, you know, as sort of a nostalgic, uh, uh, you know, part of my history. But you know, I was taught that stuff by one of the engineers at Sigma. This guy, Dom Peterkovsky, total geek, super cool. And I just took it, took it all the way. You know, I took it all the way to the, how it relates to the automation and how, how it relates to all kinds of automated possibilities. You know, it got to the point where I really was one of very few working engineers who knew how to use all that shit and who could lock up machines and, and computers and, um, and knew every single one of those early uh, machines. And, um, and so I, that's, you know, I made friends with every studio manager in town and they loved me because I was the only one who knew how to do that shit. Did you have any hesitation with going that direction? Because it's almost like you're the sheep running in the other direction. You know, I didn't, a buddy of mine was working in LA and he was working with the hair bands in LA, like winger and warrant and all, all that shit that was going on in those days. And, I, I, to be honest, that shit wasn't really interesting to me as a as a, a genre to follow musically. I kind of dug the the musical genres of uh, of the '70s mm. and the and the rock stuff from the '70s and and actually some of the punk stuff, you know, from the late '70s and '80s. I thought that was much more interesting. I thought the rock thing was quite formulaic and and a bit uh, uninteresting to me. Um, and then the hip hop guys, they were just doing fucking crazy shit and they were breaking all the rules. And that to me was more rock and roll than, than the formulaic sort of rock stuff that was happening. As far as your survival being a studio rat, was that difficult or was it easier because you seem to get a foothold in a lot of these studios? There wasn't anything easy. 
going on. <laughs> Sorry to say. Yeah. Anybody who's young and trying to break in, it's, there's no easy. You know, I, I was, I've been doing 90 hour weeks since the day I got to New York when I was a kid. And only now do I take Sundays off. So it's, there's no easy. I mean, I was, I was lucky in that at Sigma, I was taught by seasoned professionals who were, who were, who were trained by the best in the business. I mean, the guys that I was trained by were, of course, Sigma people, and they were media sound people. And then, of course, all the visiting engineers. And I was lucky enough to assist at Soundtrack as well with great engineers there, be involved with sessions that had top musicians. As an assistant, I worked with, with big names every day and amazing musicians. You know, when you're in a room with, with folks like that, if you're good, and, and again, if you have some natural ability, you're gonna watch them once and you're gonna get it, you know? And that's how good you have to be. You have to hear, listen, watch, you got it. And I was lucky enough to be in a room with some of those guys and that really helped me out a lot. Um, sorry, my, my gardener is blowing leaves. So when I got to a point where I was an independent engineer running around New York trying to service my clients in those days, for the most part, were the studios, right? Even though I build the label, the studio was the one calling me because they were just looking for an engineer. One, no engineers wanted to work on, on hip-hop and black music in general. They just didn't. And I know that sounds weird, but I mean, you know, culture today doesn't realize that it wasn't considered music. Rap music wasn't considered music. Right. Nobody in the audio industry thought that rap music was music. You know, I never got called for an interview when I did when I did the biggest hip hop records in the business. Never. You know, they they didn't you know, I didn't nobody at sound on sound and mix and shit like that called me. They didn't call me until I did Mariah. They didn't think it was music. I was into it and I was I was ready to stand up for it because I really believed in it. You know, even my clients, my 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 black clients would be like, oh, but you want to you want to do rock music. Right. And I'm like, fuck that, bro. What we're doing right now is fucking going to be historical. And it was. I was right. That shit was fucking awesome. That that took a lot of uh, a lot of balls on your part to really dig your heels in and see. No, this is actually going to be something we're all going to be dissecting years later. You know, I don't know that that I felt I had that kind of uh, foresight, but I knew that through my my growing up and the music that I loved, you know, my my sisters turned me on to really great music. And in those days, R&B was just as big. There was no separation. You know, now that you know there was a period in the in the 80s and 90s and perhaps in yeah in those areas where you know strict lines were drawn but prior to that there were the lines were were a little you know more blurry as to what was being played on a radio you'd you'd get plenty of Marvin Gaye and plenty of um, you know Aretha Franklin pl plenty of Gladys Knight and they were on TV they were on the the Saturday morning shows and it was there was much less separation than what happened later. Not not saying that I I was you know I could tell that 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 it was going to be a hit, but I could tell that what they were doing was 
was really interesting and really, you know, in some ways genius. You know, Tribe Called Quest, man, that shit was fucking genius, bro. And even even the brand Nubian stuff and, and the Devante stuff. Devante was an amazing player. You could play, I don't know how many instruments, you know, dude could play. You know, the choices they made in those days, we sampled a lot. But the choices they made at sampling, really awesome and very interesting the way they they put colors together and, you know, the way they dealt with harmonics and, and, and even they taught me so many things about how to deal with, with timing and, and feel and all of that sort of stuff. I knew that was good. Whether or not it was going to be the, the biggest thing, I, I was too focused to really understand all that. I stood up for my team in the same way that anybody would. You know, it, it's like when, when you're being ignored uh, whether whether it be in the marketplace, which we were not being ignored in the marketplace because their people were gravitating toward it, the audience was, but we were certainly being ignored by the trades, even the labels. You know, they were like, ah, well, what do we do with this? You know, <laughs> what is rap? How long is this rap? It was always a question: How long is rap gonna last? And how long is this hip hop thing gonna last? And that was always the question. And we were like, I, you know, and I, that's why I dug in. I was like, fuck that shit. You know, what we're doing is fucking hot and y'all need to figure it out. Because you mentioned earlier that people would say, oh, come on, man, you know, you want to do the rock thing, right? Did you ever have to prove yourself to show that you were committed? No. Okay. I was committed. I was in there 16 hours a day. Okay. You know, in general, rap sessions were, that was a hang session for the people involved. I mean, all their friends all their buddies, you know, there were no managers. You'd only see a label guy every once in a while, you know. It was it was their buds, you know, there was people in the room, in my room, while I mix, talking, drinking beer, hanging out. A very little smoking weed in those days. I don't even hardly remember a lot of people smoking, you know. Did you find that difficult with that many people in the room to work? You know, I, I have to tell you, and I've said this many times in, in seminars and classes and things like that, that shit came out in the music. That's that's in the music, you know? Those sessions with all those people, that came out in the music. Sure, there were times when it got too loud, and I would stand on my chair, and I'd say, all right, all y'all who are going to keep talking, get the fuck out. All you are going <laughs> to sit and hang out and listen, you can stay. And everybody would stay, and eventually the din would rise again, you know? And, and, and you know, it's just like any party, you know, when the DJ cuts something hard, it, you know, everybody stops. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was totally everybody there, even though they were there to party or they were hanging out or they were having some beef about a girl or whatever it was um, or a, football, a ball game or something. You know, they knew that they were the music was the most important thing. So if I stood up and said, y'all got to be quiet, I'm working. Or I'm recording a vocal, for that matter. You know, I need to be able to hear. Um, you know, they would shut up. Yeah. And and uh, and I think because I always respected the music and the musicians, people respected me. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30.
who do you look to in the past and say, that person is the person I can credit with being the biggest influence on me, whether a technical influence or, or, or any other kind of influence? You know, I have quite a few and it, and it's hard to, I mean, I could, I could start rambling and then you can just cut me off whenever you feel like, oh, yeah. but, um, name names, you know, I, I, I was, I was, uh, at Berkeley and the guy who, who told me to go toward, toward engineering was a guy named Tron Cabo from Norway. We remained friends until his death uh, two years ago. And also there was a guy, uh, Chris Rival. He was a student at Berkeley, and he got me a gig doing live sound with a with a big ten piece band. You know, I saw in him, you know, a dedication to the technology, and he was one of those guys who also, you know, he taught me that determination of, you know, a live sound guy. It's like there's no you don't stop. There's no stopping. You know, something goes wrong, you fucking get down there and fucking solder that shit up right there on the spot. And Chris taught me how to do that stuff and taught me that that level of, of professionalism. And then when I when I got to, to Sigma, there was there was just a, a host of uh, senior engineers and um, and folks there who really taught me a lot. And, and some of it was just how to shut the fuck up because I was I was a cocky little kid. You know, Glenn being one of them, and uh, a guy named Lincoln Clapp, and and my manager, the Hank Meyer, the studio manager as well. And then, you know, I got a chance to work with some amazing artists, James Brown, and you know, my first day at Sigma, or maybe my second day, I got to sit in on a Stephanie Mills session, a vocal session. That, that shit's pretty fucking amazing. You know, I worked with Patti LaBelle and 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 Grover Washington Jr. and Carly Simon and Ziggy Marley and as assistants and, and, you know, young engineers who were just filling in, doing, doing a little something, recording a guitar, whatever it was. And being in the room with those guys, those are the people who taught me, mm. you know. And then, and then I worked with this, uh, this, this uh, group called Full Force, and they were a production team and a writing team. And they taught me so much about recording vocals and feel and um, so many important things that I carry with me all the time and every every client I worked with I mean you know Puffy showed up um, as as a young A&R guy wanting to make a record you know he didn't he didn't know a heck of a lot about technology and he wasn't a musician but uh, you know dude knew how to make a record I mean he knew who he knew what he was looking for and that that taught me a lot as well taught me that you, you don't have to be the best musician at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be the best anything. You just have to have taste. So that that was all of that was very, very helpful. You know, I got to meet uh, Tommy Matola and and uh, working with Puff, as a matter of fact. We did um, uh, the Mariah and uh, Old Dirty Bastard. Um, Fantasy was the name of the song. Okay. Fantasy. Yeah, and, uh, and that was a huge hit, and Tommy was at the studio. And we eventually became friends, which is really nice. And, you know, being in a room and, and listening to how, how somebody with that kind of power communicates his ideas mm -hmm. without being forceful, but, you know, talking about, you know, music uh, still at that level and not just talking about business is pretty, pretty cool as well. Um, so... I, I, w I was lucky to be influenced by quite a number of people and, and still am. 
daily. What are some takeaways from those those days in New York that you learned as far as being an engineer, being an, uh, a freelance guy, and minding your business, ma- making sure that you're getting paid and making sure that you know, there's food on the table. You know, one of the, one of the things that I that I talk about in in classes and seminars that I do is young people wanting to get in this business don't quite understand that their dream is is a good thing. It's a good impetus. It's a good catalyst. But the reality of of how business works is is how this business works, or how even sole proprietorship, which is what I am works the same way as every other business. You know, if you come up with a widget and, you know, you think the widget is genius, well, then you've got to promote the widget to get people interested. And then people have to buy it and they have to like it and they have to think it's as useful as you think it is. It's the same with with this business. Just because I dreamed of being an engineer doesn't mean that I'm going to be successful at it. And it doesn't mean that I should even keep trying. It's like my friend Tron Cabo said to me, when I tried to be a musician, he was like, you're not good enough. And that's okay. It doesn't mean the end of your life. It just means that you've got to face some realities. And, you know, when I was starting out, I made goals for myself. When I got to Sigma, I was like, if I don't have a record on the radio that I had some engineering on, I'm out. Going back to Boston. Going back to Providence, you know. And two years later, I was driving down the road and heard a record that I engineered. You know, and in fact, I mixed it as well. And then I kept making goals for myself. I'm going to either make X amount of money or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work with this artist or I'm going to work at this level or whatever it was, or I'm going to learn a certain thing. And I made those goals and I stuck to them. And, and also my, my consumers, my customers responded by hiring me, by paying me. You know, if they don't, if nobody calls, you know, a lot of my colleagues will be like, oh, it's political. Sure. Yeah. There's lots of political shit going on every day. People are giving kickbacks. People are, you know, are, you know, managers are hiring engineers that they manage for a, uh, an artist that they manage and, and a songwriter they manage and getting part of, you know, they're getting pieces from all of that. And yeah, there's all of that going on all the time. But the reality is, if people don't call you and don't like your work and they don't hire you, you're not good enough. That's it. That's the bottom fucking line. And if they keep hiring you, it's because they want you to work on their music because they believe you're going to help them make money, whether that's an A&R guy, a label president, the artist, a writer or producer. So I would get hired by producers because they knew that I could take care of their shit. And that means they would make money. This is all, that's what it's about. I mean, people got to make a living. They got to pay their bills. Yeah. Sure. We all love music. We all have dreams of being, you know, whatever. But the reality is, you know, an A&R guy wants to keep his fucking job. Mm -hmm. And that means he's got to sell records in those days, sell records in these days, get streams or get popularity or, you know, sell tickets whatever it is that's his job he's got a you know that company has shareholders to to deal with and that president is concerned about those shareholders so you've got to look at it like a business so i would look at it quarter but not necessarily quarter by quarter but i would certainly look at it every six months every year did i make more money and that's the indicator right 
are you making more money year after year, especially when you're young? I mean, I got to New York, I was making 140 bucks a week riding my bicycle across a 59th Street bridge, eating a fucking egg sandwich every day, and that's it, you know? And I would eat the leftovers. No, I had nothing. I ate lentils and rice every fucking day. That was it. So making money, yeah, I want to make sure that my income's going up. If it's not going up, then I'm not good enough. That's it. Sure, maybe I didn't make enough phone calls. Maybe I didn't, maybe I said the wrong thing. Sure, you can amend that shit. You can fix that. And maybe that'll help. But the reality is, if you're not getting hired, you're not good enough. That's it. That's the bottom line. And not good enough is a broad term as well, because it encomp- encompasses everything. It could be your manager's not good enough. It could be your communication with your manager. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm not saying you're not a good enough engineer. That's not the point. The point is, it's a whole thing, you know? There's a hustle and, that you have to uh, stick by. Sure. I don't know if hustle is the perfect word for it, but there is a... It's a business. You got to run it like a business. You know, you've got to, you know, you got to get back to your clients. You got to call them up. You got to take care of them. You got to service them. That's what it is. It's a service business. And and I I paid very close attention to to my income, to my success level, and I set goals for myself. And and if if I didn't reach those goals, I amended my situation in some way and and continued. And if I still didn't see results, Trust me, I was I was on a train back to Providence, no doubt. I was sticking to my guns. You know, obviously, you want to be good as an engineer. You want to grow financially as you get deeper into your career. At what point did you involve uh, other people, like a manager, to, to help you with that? You know, I thought when I was young and I first went independent that I needed a manager. And I, and I, you know, I had a friend of mine who was a manager. He was a kid just like me. I had uh, somebody else tried to manage me and whatever. And I thought, you know, they were going to get me work. They were going to do this. They were going to do that, get me in meetings and see people and this and that. But the reality is a manager just manages your work. Sure, they can can make phone calls for you. But the reality is your performance is what gets you the work. A manager holds it together. And so the story is, and I had a couple of little managers that did nothing. And then I went to um, this woman, Duffy Mockery, who managed uh, this guy, Shep Pettibone, who's a big, big songwriter, producer. And he used to be in the studio all the time. She used to come in all the time. So I thought, well, I want her as a manager because she's always in the studio, you know, and she's always taking care of her clients. So I went to her, you know, she opens the door. She's like, hey, who are you? <laughs> you know, that kind of New Yorker <laughs> lady person thing. And, and, uh, and I said, hey, you know, I'm Tony Maserati. I, I think I reached out, blah, 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 whatever. And she said, all right, come on in. She, and she sat down and she said, all right, what do you got? And I was like, well, here's my demo tape, you know, and here's my resume and my discography and blah, blah, blah. And she looks at it. She, of course, she doesn't listen to the demo tape at all. She's like, you got nothing here. That's, those are her exact words. You got nothing here. What do, you, what do you got? What do you want me to manage? You got nothing. How much you making? And I was like, uh, you know, I'm making 800, 1200 mix, you know, or whatever it was I was making, you know, 30, 50 bucks a day. I don't know who the fuck knows what I was making in those days. Nothing. I was making nothing, <laughs> you know. And she was like, you got nothing here. Come back in a year when you got something. And they like scooted me out the door. And I was like, fuck, damn, man, motherfucker. All right, <laughs> here we go. So I, I hustled all year and worked my ass off. And, you know, things went well. I got a bunch of gigs. 
I got to the point where I, I just, I was like freaking out. I couldn't handle everything. I couldn't handle the paperwork. Couldn't do all the billing. Couldn't handle all the phone calls. All, everything going on. I was like, fuck, I can't do it. I was working with Puff. I was working with Devante. I was working with Heavy D. I was working with Trackmasters. I was working with a shit ton of projects all over town. I was working a session during the day. I'd work a session at night. Same thing the next day, the day after that, day after that. Just kept going and going and going, you know? So I show up a year later. A knock on her door. How you doing? Remember me? Yeah. What's what's going on? What are you What are you doing? Come on in. Come on in. Sit down. Blah blah blah. You know. I show my discography. I, of course, I still have the 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 demo, new demo tape, and you know all that shit. You know, set or whatever the fuck it was. And you know, I sit down and I stare, you know, stare across the table from her. She's like, "What are you making?" I'm like, "I'm still making fucking twelve hundred bucks a mix, or you know, fifty bucks an hour, or whatever it was. You know, I don't fucking remember." And she was like, okay, good. Now we got something. What are you trying to do? And I'm like, well, I need to make more money. She's like, done. What else? And I was like, well, I want to work with whoever the fuck. Done. All right. See you tomorrow. Talk tomorrow. You know, outdoor. And that was it. We worked together for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. No contract. No contract. We, we still work together. She still handles some, uh, she handles stuff for my publishing company. And, uh, and the manager I have now is only my second manager, Jason Bernard. No contract. So great trust. I, I don't need a contract, man. Fuck that. I'm loyal. I'm loyal to a fault. Yeah. Um, and if they fuck me, I'm running. And you got no so. contract, so you don't have to worry about anything. You just walk away. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. When we were talking at NAMM, I, a couple points in our conversation, I heard reference to your guys, your team, and uh, I want to know, what do you look for for somebody who's on your team? How do you how do you pick those people? Do you approach them? Do they approach you? Usually they approach me or they are referred to me. It's very rare that I get uh, just people off the street. The newest guy is a Korean dude who is a graduate of Berkeley. I've got two Berkeley grads, one full sale guy, two full sale guys, and one guy from Temple, one guy from, oh, not, yeah, Temp, Temple in Philly and Drexel in Philly. But, um, you know, they come from everywhere. One guy, uh, you know, Justin, the guy who uses the studio here, he came from Full Sail. He was a friend of my previous 
assistant because when I came here, my assistant was like, I'm moving to Chicago. I'm not staying in L.A. And I was like, "Okay, you got to find me a guy. Justin showed up. I had five guys to check out. Four of them. All they did was talk about themselves. Justin showed up and I was in the middle of a session and I said, dude, you're going to have to hang out. You know, you can sit over here in the session and we'll talk later. And as the session went on, he just started taking notes. When it came time to eat lunch, everybody was calling out what they wanted. He took down that, ordered it, went and picked it up. You know, he, he, he was an assistant before I even hired him. And I was like, that's the guy. I don't, you know, all these guys were talking about how great they are. I was like, fuck that. Why do I want somebody who thinks they're already a mixer? That doesn't help me. I need, a, I need an assistant. I don't need a mixer. And that's the same as all the other guys. I mean, and, and then as the team grew, the team members now participate in, you know, helping me make that decision. But the current guy, as I said, I, you know, he, he came to me at AES and he was like, hey, um, how you doing? And I'm looking for a job. And I was like, okay, you speak Korean? He said, yeah, fluently. I said, okay. Um, when you come out to LA, look me up. Gave him my number. He reached out. Turns out all the guys on the team like him. He's quiet, does his job, you know, doesn't talk about himself and and is interested in learning. That's it. You know, he's not coming, you know, I get guys who want to be rappers. I get guys who want to be producers. I get guys who want to be artists. I get everything. Usually they're gone within a week, even a day. Some of them don't last. But we, uh, we really look to, uh, you know, to find the, the top guys, the smartest guys, most, you know, some of the guys I've got, are, they're just amazing. They're doing so well. They're all blown up on their own. Every one of them. And you, you definitely uh, mentor them, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I rely on them. I mean, Justin, the guy who rents the studio here, he, he's my chief, chief uh, engineer. He's, he's still, you know, my computer goes down, he manages it. My gear goes down, he takes care of it. Um, when, when I need to know about new gear, I got to a team of guys who are like, you got to check this out. You got to check that out. Well, you know, these guys are on it. They're top. Amazing. Well, we're about out of time, but I, I wanted to wrap up with uh, a little bit of a question about work-life balance. You mentioned the number of hours you used to work in the days in New York. And now that you're at this point, you're a household name in the world of pro audio and, and hip hop for sure. And obviously you make more than hip hop records. I've seen, a uh, couple Keith Urban records, for example, in, in your discography. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. So, how do you balance your 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 audio life and your life with significant others or family or just downtime for yourself? It's it's really hard, really hard. I'm always envious of of guys who do it well. Um, you know, Andrew lived in this house, raised his kids, and uh, and was able to do that because of that studio. Um, you know, I know a lot of my colleagues, uh, are, have, have done it well and, uh, I've not done it so well. Uh, you know, I have a dedication to my work that unfortunately excluded a lot of family life. And, um, and it's, uh, I can't say that I'm, I'm regretful, but I am, I am reevaluating. In fact, these, the, this period in my life is sort of a reevaluation where, you know, I'm, I'm firmly taking Sundays off, which is not an easy thing. You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Saturday nights, that sort of thing, you know, and nights in general, just trying to get out of there at a reasonable hour, 7 p.m. You know, 
my day starts pretty early because I still have stuff, you know, my home. I still have a house back east that I that I have to make sure is not frozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm doing a lot to dedicate my my uh, my attention to to life and enjoyment and friends and family much more so than probably I ever did. So it's it's a very difficult task and and I think that I and I try to teach my my uh, my team and my uh, young young uh, team members as 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 best I can that that they have to take time off and they have to you know be around family, be around friends and it's about enjoying life. The work is the work, you know. Clients are always going to ask, call you in the middle of the night, asking for an instrumental. Always, it's never going to not happen. And what you do is you get a server that you can log in from home, or you 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 know have a team that you can say, hey, I'm I'm off today, man. Can you run in the studio and just crank out a vocal up version for me? You know, and that's what you got to do, and that's what I've done, and I rely on that support team. And I give them as much as I possibly can. When you say it's difficult, is it difficult to say no to the work? That, or is there just, do you have just a passion to, to be there and be a part of that? It, it's difficult to say no to the work, but it's also the business. So you're planning on connecting things. You know, if you're working with somebody that you've not worked with before that you, you've been looking forward to working with and they're, they're in town just for the weekend, you know, you got to work the weekend. Uh, or you've got to, you know, set that up in advance where where you don't have to. So it it's yeah, it's a pro it's a process that you really have to evaluate. You know, I I got a phone call from somebody over the weekend was like, you know, we need this by Monday, and I had been working on it for months, and I said, yeah, I'm not working this weekend. You know, you'll get it on Tuesday. You know, and they got it on Tuesday, so it's all good. Yeah. So, um, you know, and sometimes you can do that. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes, you know, I, I did a record with an artist that I had done the mix, you know, I waited two weeks for comments and I called the producer. I was like, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I haven't heard from anybody, you know, and the day that I was leaving for France to do the mix with the masters, they called up and she was, they were like, she wants to come to the studio t- tonight. And I was like, dude, I'm fucking flying out at, you know, 9 p.m. Can she come now? Like, you know, no, she can only come at six. Well, what the fuck, you know? And so I lost the gig. She just went somewhere else. Instead of calling me and saying, I want the kick up or I want the vocal up or I want less reverb, whatever it is. No, I have to be there. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Lost gig. Uh, my final parting thought with you uh, has to do with a video that I saw in Mix with the Masters of You. And it was all it had to do with. It was a very uh, short video. And it was on the concept of working for free. If you could just touch on that subject really quick for my audience on the concept of not working for free. You know, you can, you can, you can work today. In other words, your client could say, hey, man, I don't have any money, but I'll cut you in on the publishing. I'll cut you in on something. Or, you know what, here's a fucking PCM whatever, you know, or here's some plug-in or whatever you need. Make a deal, but don't work for free. Don't act like, sure, I'll do it for nothing. That's just not 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 a good thing. It's not, it doesn't put you in a good place. It, it, it immediately says that your value is zero, as opposed to saying, look, this is how much I normally get. What do you got that's gonna equal this? You know, give me a royalty until you, until it equals this. Or whatever, you know, or, you know, I did a, a record for somebody for for less than full rate and and said, as soon as you get a deal, 
you owe me the rest. And that's what we did. That's what happened. He got a deal. I got the rest. So don't devalue yourself immediately. It's, it's crazy to do that, you know? And again, there's always a deal to be made. Something. Gear. Fuck. You know, hotel room. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, his father's hotel or whatever it is. Who the hell knows? Yeah. There's always a deal. Well, very good. Tony, It's it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. It was great to meet you at NAMM, and I hope to see you again in the future. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Excellent, man. Okay, Tony, you take care. Take care. Tony Maserati here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. And of course, I want to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music and Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. And I want to thank you. Thanks for coming back and checking us out each week. Spread the word, leave a review, and uh, until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.